You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Dr. Stephanie Wright, the author of Glorious Brothers, Unsuitable Lovers, Moroccan Veterans, Spanish Women, and the Mechanisms of Francoist Paternalism. We discussed the treatment of wounded war veterans in post-Civil War Spain and Morocco. We also discussed Dr. Wright's current research into sexual violence in Francoist Spain. As always, you can head over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash interviews to find more information about Dr. Wright's works. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Wright, um, and today we're going to discuss Dr. Wright's research into the treatment and experiences of Spanish Civil War veterans during and after the Civil War. Dr. Wright, how's it going today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm here. I'm here, and <laughs> that's about all I'm going to say. In Francoist Spain, during and after the war, there was an effort to recast wounded veterans maybe in a more positive light. Uh, what caused this shift in how military veterans who were disabled were treated within Spanish society, which I know was they were not treated well in pre-Civil War times? Yeah, and actually to answer your question, I probably need to go back and look how disabled veterans were, were viewed and spoken about before the Civil War. So for many years, veterans of Spain's colonial wars um, had been managed within what was called the Cuerpo de Invalidos, or the Invalids, um, and that, that corps was part of the armed forces and many who became part, part of it remained in active service. And that's quite important because it meant that they were still um, they could still benefit from things like automatic promotions to seniority and that they were still um, considered active um, servicemen. So then when the second Spanish Republic comes in in 1931, they dissolve the Invalids Corps. Um, so members of that course still, still get pensions, but they're no longer in active service. They no longer get those um, seniority promotions. And I'm not sure whether you've discussed this elsewhere in, in the podcast series, but that dissolution formed part of a whole range of reforms that the Republic brought in to uh, Manuel Afania, who was the, uh, the war minister at the time, who, who brought in all these measures to reduce the size and the influence of the Spanish army, which of course um, significant problems um, in the preceding years, but also throughout the 19th century as well. So anyway, the, the dissolution of the Invalids Corps um, during the Republic formed part of the, those measures, which were, were deeply unpopular uh, within military circles. 
and seen as very anti-patriotic. Okay, so what does the Francoist side um, then do during the Civil War with disabled men who begin to return from the front with, with disabilities? Do they resur resurrect this, this invalid corps that the, the Republic had um, dissolved? Well, the answer to that is that they kind of do. So in April 1938, so still during the war, uh, the Franco side creates a body which administratively looks quite similar to the, the, the pre-Republican um, Invalids Corps. Um, so there's a similar conceptualization of disabled um, men as active soldiers, um, and there are similar kind of cultural features. So for example, uh, Miguel de Cervantes, the, um, the very famous author, um, is um, commemorated as the first um, disabled veteran of Spain um, in the Invalids Corps, and he is also um, that way in, in the new corps um, introduced um, under Francoism. But there are some key differences, and the main one is the name. The corps is no longer the Invalids Corps, but rather the Honourable Corps of the Mutilated in the War for the Fatherland, <laughs> which is a bit of a mouthful. Spanish is el primer cuerpo de mutilados de guerra por la patria. And so those, those admitted were given the quite ostentatious title of mutilated gentlemen or caballeros mutilados. Um, and so in this sense, the Francoist regime's treatment of the war disabled kind of really shines a spotlight on the interplay between continuity and um, kind of new elements in the regime's governing ethos. So there's a lot of continuity in the administrative structures of, um, of, of the regime, but also um, in, in the new core. And when I say continuity, I mean kind of continuity with the pre-Republican period. And that's quite helpful for the regime because it brings a sense of legitimacy. So the idea that the regime is just a continuation of what, has, what, what was already there before the Republic, and it's the Republic that is the, the kind of non-legitimate part of, of Spanish um, history. But there are also novel elements um, which signalled a shift from what had come before um, that, that Republican period, um, or rather a kind of mainstreaming of certain military values, which um, had previously been kind of the preserve of a select group of, 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 of military men. So the rebranding of war invalids as mutilated gentlemen reflected the regime's emphasis on the importance of sacrifice in war and the idea that these sacrifices were really the, uh, the pinnacle of Spanish masculinity and the pinnacle of Spanish patriotism. And I should say that this emphasis on sacrifice in battle and honour was really um, kind of linked to the culture of Spanish Foreign Legion and the Army of Africa in general. So the Army of Africa was the Spanish Foreign Legion and the Moroccan regular forces, um, which tended to operate in the, the northern kind of protectorate in, in northern Morocco, the Spanish in northern Morocco, sorry. Um, but the founder of the, the Foreign Legion, a man called José Miguel Estray, who was, uh, was himself a, a double amputee, he was selected to head up the um, Disabled Veterans Corps during the Civil War. So there's a very clear link between um, the, the Disabled Veterans Corps during the Civil War and the, the Legion and the kind of culture of, of um, sacrifice and honour. So, so the new kind of mutilated gentleman's corps really reflects the idea of kind of continuity of previous structures, um, but also the kind of mainstreaming of this kind of military culture that was that kind of um, was forged within the colonial wars of the early 20th century, um, which had, had been very um, formative to um, a lot of the, the, the generals and the, um, 
the armed forces personnel who would then you know, occupy quite a prominent position in, in the coup, but also in the regime, um, including Franco himself, who, who kind of cut his teeth in, in the African sphere as well. Um, but also kind of broadly in terms of PR, I suppose, um, when the regime was trying to paint the civil war as this glorious and holy crusade that was meant to regenerate Spain and purge it from the sickness of so-called Marxism, it was certainly a very kind of clever move to present the Francis war wounded um, to prevent them from, from being seen as invalids that were to be pitied. So I should say that um, even though men in the pre-Republican invalid corps were technically in active service, there was certainly a stigma around that, that invalid label. Um, so that the mutilated gentleman rebranding really helped to sidestep that stigma. Um, and actually, there's a lot of evidence to, to suggest that Frankist war, the Frankist war disabled were considered to be quite a privileged group. Um, so their material benefits were pretty meagre, um, as was often the case um, after, after conflicts, uh, you know, all over the world, um, but we, we see a lot of cases elsewhere in Europe where uh, benefits are, are pretty um, pretty meagre. But they were, Franco's veterans were treated better than, than a lot of people um, in Spain during the Civil War and, and in the post-war. So uh, the post-war period, a period of extreme economic deprivation, have around 200,000 people, according to recent estimates, of um, who die of starvation and related illnesses so you know really extreme poverty um, and so in comparison to, to those people and also more importantly in comparison to republican disabled veterans who are completely ignored by the regime Franco's veterans do appear to be um, privileged citizens um, un under the regime um, and that kind of duality between the two co co cohorts of veterans is, is really quite blatant so there's, you know, the very kind of dark humour of the post-war. People used to joke about the fact that Franco's disabled veterans were mutilated gentlemen, whereas Republican veterans were just fully the cojos. The polite translation for that is um, something like damned cripples. And then later, dissidents really kind of reappropriate the figure of the mutilated gentleman um, as a symbol of the regime and the sim symbol of the regime's um, decrepitude and, and decay. So it's, it's really quite interesting. And you in, in terms of kind of thinking comparatively with what's going on elsewhere with disabled veterans in, in the UK or in France, um, you really, it's, you really don't get that sense that Franco's disabled veterans are these emasculated figures um, that are really marginalised from society. No, inst instead in Spain, they are really kind of, they are clearly on the winning side of, of, of the war and they're not viewed um, in, in, in that way something I try to point out as well, especially coming from a modern viewpoint, especially I'm an American. Many of the listeners of the podcast are Americans, you know, uh, but elsewhere in the world, I think there's a very different view of veterans at this time in history uh, when you look around Europe and in other places. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you mentioned that, that these sort of uh, disabled war veterans, the uh, had a kind of a privileged place in society. And I know that one of the things that, uh, one of these privileges that they had was that a certain number of public sector positions were filled by members uh, of these groups. Mm -hmm. uh, was this the only way, I guess, were there other examples of sort of uh, how these men were elevated within society? 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And it's quite um, a tricky one to answer, um, even though it sounds quite straightforward. So yes, legislation was put in, in place to support disabled veterans at the Franco side, which included um, reserving 30% of vacancies for mutilated gentlemen um, in a range of sectors, but uh, very often in, in, public, in the public sector. Um, and on top of that, um, the regime provided pensions for the most severely disabled, so those who couldn't work were, were given, um, supposedly given pensions. There are also, um, well, there were also more kind of non-material privileges granted to the war maimed. So, for example, seating um, was reserved for them in, uh, on public transport. They were also granted the right to skip queues in shops. Um, which could be really important. I mean, now we're, we're used to seeing queues outside shops and you know, it's still a kind of thing at, at times of food shortages can be really beneficial to be able to, to, to skip the line. And also that's a very kind of visible, uh, visible benefit. Um, there were also a lot of commemorative events held um, in honour of the Frank Ward disabled, so football matches, bullfights, held in their honour. And so all of these kind of public and displays of honouring the war maimed are really important for cementing perceptions of Franco's veterans as these favoured citizens, um, especially in the context where the regime had so many enemies. So people with Republican backgrounds were often purged from their, their jobs um, or imprisoned or forced into exile or even killed. So, you know, within that context, all of these kind of benefits really, you know, are very striking. But then this is where a closer look at the experiences of Franco's war disabled start to kind of trouble. I noticed you used the word supposedly when discussing yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, pensions. I chose my words carefully there um, because I, I don't want to give the impression that Franco's veterans, particularly the rank and file, it, it was comfortable um, because when we, we kind of look at, at what, what, the, what the benefits that they received actually meant, it's very difficult to it's very difficult to view them as victors um, in the way that we might imagine um, that, that, that they were. And I think if we, you know, if we focus on the, the utter neglect of Republicans, and, and I just want to be clear, I'm not minimising that at all, um, but if we just focus on that, then we do lose sight of, of actually how measly the measures um, were in place, that, you know, even for Frankfurt veterans. So just to, get, to give you a few examples of that, um, the Mutilated Gentlemen's Corps operated along the basic assumption that most disabled veterans would be classed as useful. And so that was the label that they were given um, and that they would support themselves entirely through, through work. And so only those with the most severe wounds would receive a pension to live off. Now that sounds fair until you look at what the categories um, consisted of. So the, the useful category was absolutely huge. So that included veterans with wounds between um, 11 and 90% visibility. Um, if you're wondering what that means, um, because these pictures are a little bit odd, 11% could be the loss of the middle finger, for example, um, while the amputation um, of an entire arm was, was only 80%. So you could have lost an entire arm or an entire leg and you were still expected to support yourself entirely, um, entirely through work. Um, and that, that's different to, for example, the French legislation after the, the First World War, where um, it's more kind of graduated, where um, you might not receive a full pension if you're, you know, you're only 50% disabled, but you would receive something, um, whereas that's not the case in Spain. And then when people were considered wounded enough to receive a pension, those pensions were calculated, calculated according to rank. 
the incomes for the rank and file were actually pretty limited. Um, so to give you a sense of that, a soldier received between 6,000 and 12,000 per SFS per year, and that was decided in 1938, but then the rates weren't changed until 1950, 1958. <laughs> um, so over the years, that, that income really just um, kind of drops and, and, and the, the kind of privilege that that came from those material benefits in the 1930s by the 1950s really kind of start to become eroded. And I should probably say that um, Francoism, like in Nazi Germany, like in uh, fascist Italy, adopted um, a kind of pronatalist um, stance and, and um, introduced certain pronatalist policies. So disabled veterans were expected to have families. Um, they were expected to support not only themselves, but, but a wife and children, and, and they on, on the incomes that they were they were given and on the um it, it was often very difficult to support uh, to support themselves and and their families and then also just another <laughs> kind of thing to add to this um that those who were in work um if we look at what kinds of employment the disabled were were helped to get and um, a lot of this work is very um is, is unskilled work it's it's poorly paid um, it's work that, again, in that post-war period of extreme um, economic hardship is a very real privilege. But then over the long term, there are no opportunities for career progression. There are a few opportunities for job satisfaction. Um, that, you know, these aren't, um, these are employments that compensate for the career that a veteran might have had if he was never uh, wounded in the first place. And then just to add another little thing to, or element to this um, is that we really need to think about the way that we're thinking about Francoism and um, or the, the kind of community of victors under Francoism. So the kind of um, the community of mutilated gentlemen is a really um, interesting insight into that because you have or you need to think about um, or you, you have kind of two this is just quite crude, but generally speaking, a kind of two, um, I guess, strands of, of mutilated gentlemen. So you have those who continue to, to pursue military careers after the Civil War. So they, they remain um, as professional soldiers um, in active service. And um, so again, if they're in active service, then they, they can benefit from those automatic promotions by seniority. So a lot of the veterans that you know, even if, even if they enter the army at quite a low, low rank in the civil war, by the end of their lifespan, they could, they could be promoted to, to colonels. And, you know, that is the case. And actually, um, if, if you were that kind of mutilated gentleman, then you did fairly well out of the system and you could live comfortably off that. But if you were um, kind of a, a, a civilian veteran, quote unquote, which is kind of of a, a strange term but if you if you were just kind of conscripted into the army and then you left the army after the civil war and you weren't part of the, the military establishment in that way you really didn't experience that same kind of security um as as those military um mutilated gentlemen did so that there's really a kind of i think when you're thinking about because veterans and um yeah you really need to kind of think about what, what their background backgrounds are and what kind of careers that they were pursuing in in the aftermath of, of, of the war um yeah to really kind of get a sense of, of of where they sat along those um those social hierarchies um yeah so anyway just to kind of be clear i don't uh, uh, franco spain was in no way a utopia for, for disabled men 
even on the winning side and especially um, those in the rank and file. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. You were talking about how veterans were classified and how they sort of received uh, benefits. So at this point in history, there was a a general lack of knowledge about mental illnesses that were experienced by military veterans. Uh, Today, we call that post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Was this was this recognized in Spain at all um, during this period? Again, yeah, that's a really great, great question. And um, yeah, so. So to get to even get into the mutilated gentleman's corps, even if you, you know, you had been injured on the Francoist side, on the, the right side, um, for, for the dictatorship purposes, um, you you could only access those limited benefits that came with um, membership of the corps if you uh, managed to go through this um, kind of quite stringent application process where there was certain kind of um, eligibility criteria um, and mental illness was kind of problematic in terms of that eligibility criteria. So it's quite complex, but long story short is that mental instability caused by physical injury, such as a blow to the head, was considered eligible for um, for entry into into the mutilated gentleman's corps, but those with psychological trauma um, were not granted entry into the corps and so didn't receive benefits. in terms of where that kind of comes from, um, it has a lot to do with the scientific tradition in which Spanish psychiatrists or rather Francoist um, psychiatrists were embedded. Um, so German psychiatry was really influential to Francoist psychiatrists um, like Antonio Bergonacera, who was the head of psychiatric services um, for the Francoist army during the civil war. Um, so um, just to give a sense, um, of, of the, the rele- relevance of that. So in the, um, the late 19th century, uh, Hermann Oppenheim in, in Germany had introduced this traumatic neurosis diagnosis, which had enabled um, men with um, traumatic, trauma-induced conditions to receive to be recognised and to receive pensions. But then from around the time of the Great War, that 
that diagnosis was falling increasingly out of favor and was becoming increasingly marginalized within um, German psychiatry. So, and, and essentially that the new kind of um, diagnosis that became or that came into, into vogue was the hysteria diagnosis, which really situated responsibility for mental illness in, in, in the individual weakness of a particular soldier. So Vallejo Najera, who, like I said, would, would go on to lead um, the psychiatric services on the Franco side during, during the Civil War. He was actually in Germany um, at the time that all of those discussions were, were happening. So he was part of an international, Spain was neutral during the First World War, and he was um, part of an international commission um, inspecting POW camps. And so he witnessed all of those um, debates happening firsthand. I mean, Vallejo Najera wasn't the only person or the only Spanish psychiatrist at the time that kind of followed that. German, German tradition, but it really just helped to explain the Franco's regime's stance on mentally ill veterans. Um, so coming back to the, the, the application process for uh, entry in, into the core, um, part of the application process involved proving a link between your condition and your service in the war. Um, but if the science at, at the time didn't acknowledge that link and didn't acknowledge that external factors such as war could cause trauma, then there was no way for an individual soldier to prove that there was a link between um, his, his mental illness and the war. And of course, this denial of that causal link was, was very useful for the regime because it completely absolved it of any responsibility and saved, um, saved the dictatorship a, a whole load of cash um, in, in disability payments. But, but having said all of that, there were some limited provisions for what the regime termed military lunatics. Um, so that was the, um, the, the language used at the time, Spanish as dementes. So legally speaking, um, these lunatics were, um, were, were those who had either, who were experiencing mental instability caused by physical injury, injury to the brain, or, and this is more interesting, um, people with endogenous conditions like schizophrenia, like psychosis or paranoia, as long as they'd served in the army at least 10 years. So, of course, that didn't apply to the, the vast majority of soldiers who were just who just served during the period of, of, of the Civil War. Um, so, again, mental health provisions really reflect that kind of civilian military dichotomy within this cohort of disabled veterans where um, those who remain close to the military establishment can benefit from, from, that, from, from that protection. And I don't want to overstate, again, the benefits that, that mentally ill veterans received, you know, the, the few who did. Um, the, the proximity to the military, military establishment really did offer a, a little bit of protection there um, in a way that, that um, civilian veterans, if you like, didn't, um, weren't kind of covered. And then Another kind of aspect to all of this that we, we need to think about is that all of those discussions around war neurosis and all of the kind of legislation around military lunatics um, ignored men who returned from war with depression, um, with guilt, um, with conditions like alcohol abuse. And we can really, we can get a sense that people did suffer um, psychologically with, with those kinds of conditions from, um, if we look at psychiatric files, from, um, temporary asylums, but also the writings of clinical psychiatrists like Carlos Castillo del Pino, who was who worked with uh, not just veterans, but um, he wrote about some patients that he, he dealt with who, who uh, had trouble dealing with difficult memories of the war. 
So, so we know that men were often deeply affected by their participation in the conflict, but we'll never know the full extent of, of the psychological fallout of, of the Spanish Civil War, um, unfortunately. But absolutely, there was certainly a lot, a lot of um, kind of mental instability resulting from the war, and there was a certain acknowledgement of that, both um, in terms of you know by, by psychiatrists who, who worked with um, directly with, with patients, but also on a kind of more popular level in literature in particular, you can really get a sense that there is a general kind of awareness that there are some people who came back from the war changed. Um, and a, a good example of that is Femin Laforet's uh, novel Nada, which includes a couple of characters who, um, who, who are mentally unstable and she does make that connection between their service um, in the civil war and their mental instability. So. Yeah, it's very difficult to quantify and there are, there are no statistics on it, but the problem existed. Moroccan soldiers were seen as a critical part of the Spanish army in the years before the Civil War. How were they viewed within the context of the military and society? You know, were they thought of as anything close to equal? You know, how did their performance during the Civil War sort of maybe change what racism looked like in Spain? Yeah, that's um, again a great a great question. And indeed, when we talk about Spanish Civil War veterans, we, especially on the Franco side, we really need to to talk about Moroccans because they were such an important part of uh, the Francoist armed forces. So, so partly because of their reputation as um, skilled fighters, but also undoubtedly because of colonial troops, they were seen as more expendable. Um, the, the Spanish troops, um, Moroccan regulars were often used as, as shock troops uh, during the Civil War, so they often played a leading role in some of the key battles. Um, so in, in terms of how they were viewed within the military, you know, they were, they were known for, or they had this kind of reputation for, for their ferocity um, on the battlefield, um, but there was also this kind of element of, of colonial pride um, in, in the Moroccan regular troops. So. Uh, Moroccan soldiers were certainly seen as racially inferior Spaniards, but Spanish officers had this kind of romantic view of, of the regulares as this kind of, you know, one of the last vestiges of Spain as an imperial power. So Spain um, lost its last American Pacific um, colonies in, in 1898, which uh, becomes known simply as El Desastre, the, the, the disaster. So um, in that sense, the, the, the um, the Moroccan protectorate is really this kind of part of Spain's sense that it is still a colonial power and still an important um, world power. And actually, there's, there's still a lot of, um, I guess, kind of romanticism around that the Moroccan regulars within within the Spanish army. So there's in the Spanish army there is still uh, there are still troops which are called uh, regulares, so the, the regulars. And even though they're mostly Spanish now, they still uh, wear the the old uh, kind of traditional uniform of, of the Moroccan regulars, so the red caps and the uh, the white white cloaks. Um, I don't think there's been a discussion about uh, cultural appropriation um, in the Spanish army yet. I sometimes wonder whether it's coming, but it'll be interesting when it happens. Throughout Francoism, um, the the figure of the Moroccan Moor, uh, to use the language of time, is really important to um, kind of Francoist imperial prestige. Uh, Franco has his own Moorish guard, um, for example, made up of, of Moroccan troops. In, in terms of how they're viewed in society, um, that, that's quite complicated and, and it kind of depends. So 
there's general racism. So um, certain expressions like Aymoros in La Costa, there, there are Moors on the coast, um, which is kind of an expression to say that there's um, somebody dangerous or suspicious around, you need to be careful. And so there's those, those kinds of, I guess, like low level um, racism, I suppose. But then, um, but then there's also a kind of more kind of positive side to things. So during the Civil War, a lot of Moroccan soldiers meet um, and form romantic attachments with Spanish women, for example. Um, so, and I mean, that often happens when Moroccans are in Spanish hospitals and, and they're being treated by, by Spanish nurses. nurses. Of course, when the regime catches wind wind of this, they're you know they're really concerned about racial mixing, and a lot of these couples um, are um, quite sadly really um, prevented from seeing each other. A lot of their love letters are confiscated as a way of trying to, to separate them. But I mean, but the, the fact that these relationships existed um, really gives a sense of how more kind of positive relationships could be developed on on the ground and. They, I'm sure they, you know, they weren't free of those kinds of racial hierarchies, but it does present a slightly kind of different, um, different, different side of things there. But I'm not sure or how much empathy there was for for Moroccan soldiers. And I should probably say that another side that I haven't mentioned is that Moroccans were really depicted as these rapacious savages, um, and Francoist generals, particularly Ontario um, um was famous for this uh, speech that he gave where. Um, he would talk about uh, where he was kind of threatening uh, the Republican side and saying that the Moroccans would come and, and slaughter the men and rape the women. Um, so, you know, this figure of the Moroccan Moor as this, uh, as, as these kind of barbarous characters was promoted on, on both sides, um, really, um, which I think, you know, probably served to preclude any kind of empathy um, for, for, the, for their sacrifices, really. In terms of policy. Um, so during the war and post-war, there's certainly um, a sense that the regime needs to at least look like it's, ca- it's caring for, for its Moroccan troops. Disability provisions are a part of that. Um, so Moroccan troops who, who become injured and, and become disabled um, are, are catered for within a, a Moroccan um, version of the, the Spanish Honourable Corps. But, but also, I mean, during the war, the Franco side goes out Kind of attempts to keep the troops docile by catering for their religious customs. So, like kind of special Muslim hospitals which provide halal food. Um, Moroccans are allowed to practice their their religion freely during their time in the army, um, which is particularly striking um, when you think about the fact that, that the war is being depicted as this Catholic crusade against um, against the infidel. Um, but there is that kind of uh, that, that tolerance of of the cultural practice. Of, of Moroccans there but I mean this kind of continues to an extent after the civil war so particularly um, after the second world war when Spain is isolated from its European neighbours because of its, its open support the axis um, and the regime needs to find allies elsewhere this kind of elsewhere includes the Arab world so Spain continues to foster harmonious relationships with uh, relations with with the protectorate um, so, for example, it makes a big show of providing affordable housing and other kind of social measures in, in northern Morocco. Um, so there is that kind of sense of um, that, that kind of sense of paternalism, which um, remains beyond beyond the civil war and after the, the Second World War. But 
that capitalism dropped off over time, especially after independence in, in 1956. You mentioned the sort of how Moroccan veterans are treated. I know that they create an honorable core of the Moroccan war mutilated, which has a yeah. Spanish name I'm not going to attempt. So, but we've also discussed uh, earlier in this interview about how, you know, maybe the benefits that were provided to Spanish military veterans were not great. Uh, so how did the, what was provided for Moroccan war veterans uh, kind of compare to that? Yeah, so the, the Moroccan war, war disabled, that it's an interesting case because obviously they recognize in a way that Republican veterans aren't, um, but the provisions for them are even more measly than they are for the Spanish rank and file. Um, and really there was a little attempt to rehabilitate them um, for the workplace. So, you know, work was such a huge focus for Spanish disabled veterans and this idea that they would kind of reclaim their um, or maintain their, their masculine identities and their, their roles as breadwinners to their, their families through work. You just don't get the same um, kind of rhetoric or the, or the same emphasis on that with uh, with Moroccans. Again, those who who were gravely disabled but not disabled enough to attain the higher categories of disability are the ones that, that fare the worst because they really kind of fall between um, the gaps in provisions there. After Moroccan independence in, in 56, the regime essentially kind of washes its hands um, of its responsibilities to, to those, to that category and, and to those who, who are classified as useful. So the, at, at that time, those veterans are either transferred to the Moroccan army or they receive a very small pension um, commensurate with their years of service. And that might not have been um, that many years. So, and then on top of that, you, you just really don't get the linguistic squeamishness, I suppose, that you get with um, Spanish veterans. So Moroccan, Moroccan war disabled aren't mutilated gentlemen um, like Spaniards. Um, and the regime has no qualms really of, of referring to them as, as invalids or as useless. Um, so, so on the surface, there's, there is a core for Moroccan veterans and there are provisions there, but there are quite stark differences between the treatment of disabled Spaniards or disabled Francoist soldiers and, um, and Moroccans. So outside of, of just war veterans, I know your current research kind of looks at the uh, sexual abuse that occurred in Francoist Spain. And I think I've seen the phrase dishonest abuse. Uh, what does that mean? What is that research sort of, what, what are you looking at right now? Yeah, so I suppose, um, so the work that I'm doing at the minute kind of follows on, um, on my interest of um, the body and how um, Spaniards experience um, the civil war and Francoism through through the body, through disability, through through violence. Um, so my my research at the minute looks particularly at how women under Francoism experience sexual violence and how sexual violence was dealt with in the courts, particularly um, how medical evidence was used um, by by Francoism. Um, by the Francoist courts in, in um, trials relating to sexual violence. Yeah, I mean, I'm still in the early stages of that, that research, um, but it's, it's really quite interesting in the sense that, I guess when, when I started out, I was expecting to see um, a lot of, um, I guess, politically motivated sexual violence or you know violence where sexual violence where in the courts um 
the political identities of the perpetrators and, and the victims um, formed a kind of important part of how, um, how those court processes develop. But as I've been doing the research, um, I've been getting a sense of the, the more kind of subtle ways in which Francoism um, and all the construction of the Civil War affected um, women's experiences and not just women, but um, sexual violence in, in general. So um, in terms of kind of how how women are um, are dealt with in the courts, you that there's kind of there's a lot of again there's a lot of continuity with the way in which um, chastity and um, purity is um, regarded before the Civil War and and before Francoism. But what what you get under Francoism is I guess a hardening or kind of less leeway in terms of um, how how women are treated and not not just women but also children as well so there's just um in ideas of catholicism and um those kinds of i guess longer standing um ideas of female chastity are, are certainly there but they're exacerbated by the fact that a lot of the administrators that are in the courts or um are are less likely to give women the benefit of the doubt or are to put, to put it differently, uh, perhaps more willing to protect their military brothers or to protect their um, people who they are in boots with politically. Um, so really that kind of um, harshening of, of attitudes towards victims, so kind of a, a, an increase in, in victim scepticism, I suppose, kind of comes because, I suppose, more, more because of the, the tighter connections between the, the the men who are in power um, within those administrative roles, um, rather than because of strictly speaking kind of political motives, um, if if that makes sense. But yeah, it's 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 a it's a really um, interesting project, and it's it's one that I'm really looking forward to to getting back um, and getting back into the archives um, where when I can to 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 look into this more. But it, it you really get the sense that because there is so much corruption within the Francoist courts. Victims really, um, really cling to medical evidence, and you know, a, a lot of um, victims actually will go will go to the doctors before they even present a, a rape denunciation to to the police, and they'll say to the doctors, Do, "Can you examine me?" And then they will go to the doctors and say, "Look, I have this doctor note that, that says I have been raped." Um, and there is this kind of hope in the, um, I guess, objectivity of, of science there. Uh, but actually, often they, the, the victims are ultimately unsuccessful in their, in their denunciations because um, there will be further medical examinations ordered and the, the, um, the people conducting those examinations will be very happy to follow the steer of the court, will be very happy um, to um, exploit the ambiguities of medical evidence. So, I mean, even now, medical evidence in rape trials is extremely, ex extremely ambiguous. Um, and, and that was no less the case at the time. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I'm, it's a project that I'm still in the process of, of working on. But um, I think 
there again we'll see the kind of more subtle ways in which um the regime aside from all of the the purging all of the um the very kind of blatant repression um i think the project will really we'll see those kind of more subtle ways in which the regime um shifted expectations of women um and also um expectation or um the ways in which justice was was carried out on on crimes that weren't strictly speaking related to the kind of political instability in Spain. Thank you for uh, coming and talking with me today uh, about about these uh, topics. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely.